0: Hello, wonderful listeners of Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. It's November, which means that in the US, we're celebrating Thanksgiving at the end of the month. It's a season to express our gratitude, and a great way to express gratitude is to pay it forward. And this is why I have chosen to support a wonderful initiative by Will Reynolds, a leader that you will hear from in the month of December, and somebody who in his life has actually shown and walked the walk of paying things forward. I am supporting his initiative two ways. First of all, I have made a donation, And second, I'm going to turn the microphone over to him to tell you what he's doing. After you hear that, I'm going to quickly come back and tell you where you can make a donation to support it.
1: Howdy, friends. I'm Will Reynolds, and I am sleeping outside on November 19th to raise awareness, but also to raise a boatload of money for homeless youth in the city of Philadelphia. And the reason why this is important to me is we have a cutoff date. When it's your 18th birthday, you're technically an adult. So that means like if you're 17 years old and 364 days, we have support systems for those youth. If you're one day later, there's a lot fewer resources. And we throw those youth into adult homeless facilities with a lot less government support. And that is why I'm sleeping outside because the Covenant House, for whom I've been sleeping outside for 12 years to raise money for homeless youth in our city, they focus specifically on that 18 to 22-year-old youth who's probably still more like a kid than they are like an adult. And now they just don't have as many resources. So that's why I'm sleeping out. Would appreciate your support. Thanks so much.
0: As you can tell, it's a wonderful cause. Let me just share what resonated with me on this and why I chose it as something to support this month. The first thing is the fact that it is local to his own community. The second thing is that he's actually doing an action that puts him on the same level as the people that he's helping. And so it shows a tremendous amount of empathy. Third and final is the fact that as you have heard, he's been doing this for 12 or 13 years, which shows a tremendous amount of commitment and consistency. So if you want to help to donate, go to bit.ly backslash helpwill1122 spelled B-I-T dot L-Y backslash helpwil one Yes, Will's name is spelled with only one L. So once again, it will be helpwil one two two. Thank you so much. Any donation helps.
2: It was quite interesting to start the company here in Boston because I was exposed to startups and founders who were gigantic and doing things. The environment and the ecosystem is 10, 100 times bigger than it is in Italy. So certainly when I went back to Italy, because that's where we started with the market, I felt kind of more confident and less scared than my fellow, I think, founders, because I had I'd seen what it could be like, I had seen what the competition was in the States, and so it felt more comfortable and more home style, less scary for sure.
0: Welcome, I'm your host Dino Cattaneo and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. Last week, we talked to Ariel Nissenblood, community manager for Squadcast. We talked about podcasting and how by building a genuine community of users, she's actually helping the marketing effort for Squadcast, an SAS product. Today our guest is Laura Cesaro. She's a founder that I met a couple of years ago through my role as a mentor at the Harvard iLab. At the time, Laura was a student at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and she had just launched Sirius Game, a fascinating edutech startup. Sirius Game uses an app and a gamification approach to teach Latin to high school students in Italy. In our conversation, Laura talks about being a young founder and she also talks about launching a venture in the middle of a pandemic and across two continents. Of course, since she's a fellow Italian, we also talked about the differences about launching a venture in Italy and the US and some of the challenges that she has encountered as a young female founder working in Italy. Finally, we talked about how using a different and more modern approach to teaching Latin can actually help expand access to education overall. Enjoy! In full disclosure, first of all, it's very strange to be talking to you in English because uh, you and I normally interact in Italian. Second, in full disclosure, you and I met, I think, two or three years ago. You were a student at the Harvard School of Education, and I was uh, a mentor at the iLab, and so we were paired. And I was as I was mentoring through the early phases of your venture. So, with the full disclosure out of the way, now. <laughs> Why don't we get an introduction to our listeners and and tell us who you are, what you're doing now, and a little bit of how you got here with your journey?
2: Absolutely. So first of all, thank you for inviting me. I was thinking, shouldn't I be here in 10, 20 years, (laughs) maybe? But I thought that it could be interesting for the audience also to hear a point of view from someone like me who is 29 right now. So still not super young, but I would say still hopefully not at the at the peak of my career and work work experience. So still the early stages. So I'm Italian, as you mentioned. And so yes, it is weird to (coughs) be speaking to you in English, but I'm from the north of Italy and I attended schools there. And when I was about 14, 15, I started feeling the urge to to go, to leave, to try new things. And so I was lucky and privileged enough to be able to go to the UK to finish high school. And And that was the first time that I really felt like I belonged somewhere in this international school and international environment with people from all over the world doing all different things. And I loved the fact that there was, instead of having a competitive approach to what we were doing, it was more of a collaborative approach. We knew we were all doing things, different things. We were going to do different things in the future. And so... I think that those formative years are really shaped the way that I um, approach collaboration within and inside and outside of of my company. So after high school, I decided to study classics. That's always been my passion, so Latin and ancient Greek. And and that's the reason why as soon as I graduated, I went to Greece to officially work as an archaeologist However, while I was there, it was the peak of the refugee crisis. I felt I couldn't not take part in it. And so decided to become an activist, a volunteer. And that was the first time that I think I really realized I could create something, that I could do something. I was 22. I never thought before that... Someone like me who was just, you know, out of school and still young could be in charge of anything, uh, but there was just no one else there. And so (laughs) there was a really no competition, if you want to put it that way. No government resources, no large international NGOs. And so just me and a bunch of other students, because those were the only people that were there and could like afford to just, you know, stop doing what they were doing. We created something huge, which was different projects in different parts of town, in different camps, in the streets. Even we created an educational collective that really managed to offer classes to thousands of students every day. And there is this when I started to, you know, coordinate this group of volunteer teachers and learn about fundraising for the project and learn about HR and people management and training teachers and creating a curriculum and making uh, the project scalable and, and realize how much we could really expand the impact that we had. sorry that when I start speaking about Greece, I, I usually it takes a long time, but I think it was very formative and has impacted and informed the way I work ever since.
0: Just to clarify, you mentioned you were in Greece, so basically all these educational programs were in support of the refugees in various camps in Greece.
2: Absolutely, yes. So this was all non-formal education for refugees and then asylum seekers in Greece that had come in from all over uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, Iran, Syria, and many other countries. After that, I was 24. I didn't really know what to do after that. I had to stop doing what I was doing because I burnt out, which was a great lesson on learning how to take care of yourself and balance uh, your energies and your mental health because otherwise you as it happened to me, uh, you stop being helpful to anyone around you. I left and I decided to continue my education. I wanted to get a master. I applied to Harvard, got my master in education, with a focus on technology innovation. And that's where really I I was able to start thinking about uh, what sorts of project, what new challenge I wanted to to tackle on. I was lucky enough and privileged enough to come from a series of entrepreneurs in my family. My father is one, my grandfather was one. And I had worked in the family business, which is a consultancy for family businesses, very meta, <laughs> I can say. And that had allowed me to see a lot of entrepreneurs and their challenges, their leadership styles, their approach to leading and creating. And this is when, you know, at the I-Lab, I, at the Innovation Lab of Harvard, I started creating a serious game, which is when, is when I met you.
0: I think one of the reasons why I was really attracted to be paired with you on the project is that uh, Sears Game tackles a problem that uh, I and many of my friends dealt with in our high school years in Italy, which is the way that Latin is taught in high school and, and basically provides an alternative way and more access to, La- to, to studying Latin.
2: Exactly. I think the common, one of the common threads in all the projects that I do is an approach to uh, expand access to create more inclusion and inclusive spaces. And I understand it's hard for a non-Italian audience to understand this, but the, the study of Latin in Italy is very elitarian. Even in public schools, usually those who go to this high school are people that have uh, come from families who have gone to these high schools and have, or have the means to, uh, to pay for private tutoring, which then leads to, to higher education. So uh, having faced those challenges myself, I really wanted to offer an environment that was more inclusive of different students and different way of learning. So that's the mission of, of Serious Game.
0: And it's interesting for me because when you tell your story, Serious the co- Game is a little bit of a combination of your passion for the classics in university the discovering the context of actually teaching, which was not something you were thinking about until you went to Greece, correct?
2: My mom is the teacher and I had very really early, I had said I will never get into teaching. That's not what I want to do. And then <laughs> in one way or the other, I still managed to include that in, uh, in my profession.
0: The third component is the fact that there's also like a personal part of it, which because I think you and I have had conversations around the process of learning Latin and the fact that because it is taught, at least in Italian high school, only a certain way, if your learning style doesn't match that style, it has serious consequences.
2: Absolutely. So I was one of those students whose uh, learning style did not match the way it was taught. I failed miserably uh, my first year of high school and looking back now, and maybe from an outside world perspective, what is a grade what is a fail in one failing in one subject in the bigger universe of a life but for me uh, still to this day it was a very very i had a really huge impact and mostly i believe it's because i i didn't understand why things were not going the way they were supposed to i was i had always you know been a great student and something changed like i changed school and in one subject i I just uh, was failing miserably and I didn't know what was happening. Everybody around me did not have the same issues. So I really felt like an outcast. It just, uh, this sensation and this feeling of failure started from Latin, but it managed to permeate all the other sides of uh, my life, my body image, my friendship, my status. I, I felt like a failure in everything. And as a teenager, that has a great impact. And so it's something that I have brought with me and for a long time. And Sears and is therapeutic project, I would say, for me too. So yes, absolutely. It's interesting how everybody thinks that I study Latin at university, that I founded an app that focuses on the teaching of Latin. And uh, therefore, I must have always been like a genius in this subject, but it's uh, the other way around, actually. <laughs> it's the complete opposite.
0: I remember when I read about the project in the iLab matching process, thinking the genius of bringing Latin in a context like an app and gamification, because not only it adapted to a different learning style, but it also brought something that in some cases, you know, Latin is considered a dead language. And so putting it within a modern context, it almost like gave it life again for newer generations and a way for them to connect with the language.
2: Absolutely. I, so... This is something that I love and I'm very passionate about. And I do not advocate for the expansion of like the study of Latin everywhere in the world. I think it's very uh, important to, to me being born in Italy and to those who grow up in a Western society, because even here um, it is still at the base and the roots of our culture. So this it is very important to be able to, to know where we come from and uh, what a legacy we still take from society that ended more or less <laughs> 1500 years ago but I do believe that there is, is an inherent uh, value in um, understanding the dynamics of our past and our roots and it's not just the mechanic of the language it's, uh, it's about really connecting with the literature with the history and uh, I think this is the key that we offer our users towards the past. And the idea is not to make it li- lie about what it was and make it, you know, all wonderful. It's not about canceling the things that we don't like nowadays. It's about uh, um, developing a critical approach to it and really understanding the development over time of us, of our society.
0: All right, great. So... You came up with the idea, you know, you saw the problem, you had faced it yourself and now here you are. You are a trained in the classics with a pursuing a master in education and now you have to build an app. What were some of the initial challenges that you faced and what were some of like the critical decision that you made that you think helped you and maybe if there's like some critical decision that went the wrong way, what did you learn from it?
2: If I have to be honest, I mean, we could talk about the details about, you know, choosing the right partner like the right software house, and make the right interface. These are very much details. But for me, if I have to think about what were the key and vital, crucial points, it's, it's always been about people. It's all about to be an encounter. So there is this phrase that my dad has Gifted me, which is not his, but it's a quote that says "The life is um, the art of encounters, is the light of, is the art of meeting. And I think if I have to think back on the past few years, it, it cannot be more truth. I think the hardest part, as I said, I think that despite the facade, despite the ability to be in a room with investors or at Harvard or I deep down, I'm still a quite insecure person. And so maybe the biggest challenge for me was really to start this project. I had written this down on a piece of paper when I was 17. So 10 years before I started Serious Game. And I have written down exactly what I wanted to do. I remember I was in Cyprus doing a work experience. And I said, this is is something I have to do. But it took me 10 years to actually start because I didn't... think I was good enough. I didn't think I was old enough. I didn't think I had the skills. And I think that it's kind of like making a baby. Like when people say, oh, you'll never be ready. Like, don't think that there will be like, you will not have a time where everything is perfect. So I kind of had to decide, okay, maybe I don't have all the knowledge related to finance. Maybe I don't have, you know, I'm still in grad school. Um, Maybe I don't have everything figured out, but I want to do it and I want to do it now. Like I have to start. And what helped me take that step was a a friend of mine. And she's a fellow entrepreneur, another female founder. And to have someone next to me who was being an entrepreneur and being a female and, and being as young as me and doing it, I really felt... It really made me confident that I could do it too. And this is when we talk about the importance of representation and why I, I appreciate you inviting me, because I think that's what I could bring to the podcast as, you know, being someone younger, maybe than the previous guests. And so that's, I, I think for me, it was a, a key moment. And with that, as it's always been surrounding myself with people that shared my values and shared my vision and i connected with my vision even if you know maybe in the beginning they didn't completely understand it but then really connected with that and and i'm not talking about just the people i hired but i'm talking about investors i'm talking about mentors i'm talking about even providers such you know the software house and especially in the startup world and venture world there's this kind of competitiveness and eagerness to raise fund as much fund as possible and so I I had I was uh, in the incubator I was in I had fellow founders who would just you know come in and say I've raised three million I've raised two millions and I didn't feel that was the right path for me I felt that when walking into a room with the investors with partners I wanted more than just the money they could offer. I had to connect them on um, with my guts, we say in Italy, right? I ha- it had to feel right. And I think that has, again, those have been the most right choice that I've made to follow my instincts. And I think I, you're never sure 100%. So these, uh, maybe one day I, I will discover that I made um, a wrong assessment, but so far it has worked pretty well, I think.
0: How do you think that Starting the venture within the context of the iLab, so being exposed to American founders and other company has impacted your relationship with investors and other founders in Italy, because the, the in some ways, the culture in Italy is a little different. And I think that the certainly the edutech space in Italy is not viewed super favorably. So what was the impact of being not just in that bubble in Italy, but being open to like a more international
2: It was quite interesting to start the company here in Boston because I was exposed to startups and founders who were gigantic and doing things, the environment and the ecosystem is ten, a hundred times bigger than it is in Italy. So certainly when I went back to Italy, because that's where we started with the market, I felt kind of more confident and less scared uh, than my fellow, I think, founders, because I had, I'd seen what it could be like. I had seen what the competition was in the States. And so it felt more comfortable and more home style, less scary for sure. Even though I think that the tech system right now in Italy is really uh, booming and there's a lot of interest even from outside of Italy right now, it was a sleeping giant as they call it when i uh, arrived and so it was quite interesting to be one of the few first startups in the ecosystem and it's such a small world we all know each other and so you know all this uh, among startup with the founders with the investment groups so it's definitely there's less room for mistake and Yes, like your reputation in Italy is much, I think, more important than in the states because there's not really running away from Italy here in the states. I guess you can. It's so big that not everybody knows everyone, especially at the early stages, as as we are.
0: You know, one thing that you mentioned is that your family is an entrepreneurial family, and you've have, you've have spent from an early age as you've been involved on and off with your family business, advising. Other family businesses. How has that helped you as a founder?
2: I think we have to be, when we talk about our own path, I like to be very upfront about privilege. And I think honestly, being born in that environment has been one of the biggest privileges that I had because having lived next to entrepreneurs my own life, I knew what it was like. I knew what were the challenges, what were the rewards. And I'm to- I'm not talking about, uh, you know, reading a financial plans, but I'm talking about the emotions that goes with creating a business. So I knew what it's like to feel alone, to feel lonely. As a founder, I knew what it was like to feel a responsibility towards your employees and, you know, sometimes being scared of not being able to cover the salary in the net, like uh, after two months for everyone and knowing that they rely on you for uh, taking care of their families. I know what the challenge is, what it was like to be awake at night when you have to sign, you know, a mortgage with the with the bank and, you know, take a risk in something you believe in. So these were all emotion that I had seen my father going through and that he was smart enough to share with me from a very early age. So I think that I knew what I was getting into for sure. The other, as I mentioned, so this, growing up in a business gave me that. The fact that our business is a, a consultancies for other businesses, it meant that I had the possibility to really span through different markets, through uh, see a lot of different companies doing very different things, but see the common threads between the different entrepreneurs. So I was able to see the different leadership styles. I was able to assess and analyze what the values that the different entrepreneurs had and their their traits. And so I think that I had time to know what type of entrepreneur I wanted to be, what type of leader I wanted to be, because I knew I could observe And kind of, you know, had all those case studies basically (laughs) every day and and seeing those from up close.
0: So how would you define the type of leader that you aspire to be? What what were some of the key traits and maybe some of the examples of situations that made you decide, I want to be this and not that?
2: I thank you for asking me not the type of leader that I am, but the type of leader that I would like to be, because I still think it's a very uh, work in progress. And um, honestly, I think that in order to be consistent, which I think it's what people around you really need in a sense that need co- uh, consistency, coherence to understand what you're doing day after day, I couldn't pretend to be someone else. I couldn't pretend, I couldn't hide my weaknesses, my core weaknesses which I always knew they were there, and as, and I'm aware of those as as much as I'm aware of my strength. So for me, it's always been important to to be upfront and open about my uh, shortcomings, maybe what I think could uh, could be my weaknesses, and make sure to surround myself with people that can balance those out but especially to put in place uh, strategies to make sure that the business uh, and the operations are not affected by those. So I think as a leader, I'm very, oh, I would want to be and aspire to be very open and vulnerable in, in a way, maybe to, to those around me, but show that my weaknesses and my vulnerabilities do not necessarily define me and do not necessarily make me less valuable in what I do. But I think that not pretending to be this uh, perfect person for those around me makes them also feel comfortable and supported in their moments of need. And so that, uh, because we have to admit we're all humans and we all have those moments. And so I think it's important to know for all those that um, work in my business that uh, it is a safe environment where there is space for being having difficult moments having crises, and the people around you will be there to support you and not judge you but just work around those and work with those in order to continue doing what we're doing and uh, not judge you as a person by um, that moment about that they appreciate you as a whole
0: You know, I've had here entrepreneurs who have uh, started really young and are later on in their entrepreneurial journey. I've had a couple of founders that started later in life and and are doing really well. And then I think I may have one other founder who started really young and is still in the early phases. When you think about having started so young with your own venture, what do you think about the advantages that that has provided you and maybe what are some of the challenges?
2: The fact that... I started right now in this historical moment. You know, I started right during COVID, like right at the beginning of the COVID crisis. And when people started, you know, working online, I started realizing that maybe, you know, being stuck inside for all this time, you know, had consequences on our mental health and which impacted the way we work. So there was a space for the I would say, disruption of the conventional way of working. And so I was able to bring in my approach, which is very flexible. We all work remote. We see each other every two, two humans um which again I said was very open to vulnerability and weaknesses and with a big support on mental health and every under their needs of my um, co-workers and so I think that there was space for that I, maybe if it had happened two years prior or if I had done it and surrounded myself with people that were much older than me and used to a different type of working style especially in Italy where things, uh, are usually done from nine to five in the office, uh, very hierarchical, very specific style. It would have not worked as well. So I don't think it wasn't just me being young, but all the team being young that allowed us to really decide and create what we wanted in the way we wanted. So we were we really had this freedom of creating the um, uh, the work environment that we as young people aspired to to be in. So I think this is the positive aspect of being young. Surely as a negative aspect is the fact that, again, it depends in which environment you're in, but being young woman in business in Italy, sometimes it's hard to be taken seriously and to be trustworthy. And I think that I had to lean on the partners that I had surrounded myself with, the the Harvard brand, the investor brand, the specific consultants, to really allow people around me to believe in what I was doing. But I was very aware of that. I had been walking in rooms with my father only because I was with my father because other entrepreneurs would have not let me in as a consultant, as a 28-year-old female consultant. So I was very well aware of that. And so I kind of had to find techniques around it instead of like denying a situation that uh, even though I hope that in the future will not be like that and we're all working towards breaking those barriers, for now they still are. And so, yes, that I think was one of the challenges of being, being young.
0: You brought up a lot of other points that I was going to ask you about, which is the fact that you came up with a venture that was partially informed by a very different culture than the business culture in Italy and what were some of the obstacles that you faced. I'm curious, you mentioned that you were in a incubator space in Italy for a while, and I'm curious, in your conversation with other young founders who may not have had, as you mentioned, the other items that you brought with yourself, the Harvard education, the family, how are they dealing with this challenging and what are some of the lessons that somebody who is operating in a culture that is more challenging, you know, could take from that?
2: Unfortunately, the biggest challenge that we have in Italy is the lack of entrepreneurial seed in young people. So we are told that we need to be, you know, you're young, you keep your head down, you listen to what old people have to say. And then once you did all your, we call it gavetta, after you pay the dues, maybe we'll listen to you. Italy is an old country and it's going to be older and older. The younger generation are do not have such a even um, political weight uh, because there's not too many of them in comparison to older generations. And so I think that what I've seen around me was other founders like me who had the the privilege of growing in other entrepreneurial families. Because, you know, we grow up in a... It's it's kind of a society where your mom, my mom included, still is not happy about what I do because she wants me to go back and get a teaching job that will assure me a salary for the rest of my life, you know? So it's that there's, there's a bigger fear of risks, of entrepreneurial risks, I think, in Italy. And this is something that I really would like to work on. And I think... Uh, I, I can see a lot of things changing and I, there's more capital going in, more incubators and accelerating, supporting people. But I think it's even too late. Those things comes when people have start, they have had ideas and they have, uh, you know, started the product and maybe are in a pre-seed or seed phase. I would like to see that happening in high schools. I would like to see that happening. I would like to see a f- programs uh, focusing on, uh, uh, creativity and innovation and fostering that entrepreneurial spirits in people when they're, you know, at the peak of their creativity, that can be when you're between 15 and 30. Um, I really would like that and would like to be part of, of that change, actually, because people are still, I think, getting there too late in comparison to other countries like the US.
0: So an interesting thing that you mentioned is the fact that there's a the environment is not as supportive and, or as ready as in the US. And you told earlier about the fact that you have been cautious about getting external funding or like you know trying to raise large rounds. What role did the the fact that you were operating in an Italian environment versus, you know, the UK or the US play and you deciding no, I'm I'm just going to take what I need now and not try to get a big round?
2: Actually, I don't think it's due to the environment, it's due to who I am as a person and who I am as an entrepreneur in a sense that it is common within incubator to always look for uh, the unicorn. And, and I understand it from a venture capitalist point of view who are making an investment. But I think that because maybe I grew up in a consultancy that focused on small businesses and medium sized businesses, I think of the about the value that we are creating and about the impact that we are creating in our community and therefore my aim has never been the one, and maybe I shouldn't say this to <laughs> in a public podcast uh, for those who invested in the company. Has never been the one to you know make it or break it, either. You know, go full in and be the next unicorn, or just uh, drop it and and move to the next startup. But I'm doing something I believe in and I'm passionate about, and I wanted to make sustainable and impactful. I can't wait to be at the point where we will be raising a huge round but that will happen once we um, have uh, figured out product market fit in a sense that we're sure that that capital will be used I believe in being authentic in what I do and I maybe I should learn to but I can't just raise funds for the sake of raising funds and convincing people that I have something that is ready for that phase when it's not. There's this low food movement in which I see myself, and maybe it's a similar philosophy of business. It's um, about being being authentic and creating something that is really valuable, because I know that once we created that, then the growth will be much easier and much more natural to achieve.
0: Yeah, and just for the, it's funny because the slow food movement, even though it's got an American or British English name, it's actually an Italian movement that it's all about cooking slowly, authentic products and eating slowly. And it's sort of, it's the opposite of the fast food movement.
2: Exactly. It's, it's a focus about eating and like cooking with um, elements from your own surrounding. So with the products that they grow locally and they have a tradition and, uh, but yes, it's movement that was born in direct contracts to the fast food, fast food movement.
0: One final question around sort of the business and how do you define success for yourself and and for the business within this context?
2: Personally, my aim business-wise, when I think about my business, is making the project that we have and the impact that we're having as big and as extensive as possible in a sustainable way. So. Having come from non-profit world, having come from uh, solidarity, of course, the values and the impact that my product and my company uh, has is one of the top priority, but it's not the only one. We are for-profits and we chose to be for-profits because we want to make it sustainable, because we want to make sure that we're not leaning on others, on external uh, funding to to be able to bring this innovation and these create this impact so this is the the time that I will say successful is when we have optimized the impact and the growth that it can have. so for me it will be successful when uh, I have not reached a 0.5% of the market, but my aim is 20 30% of the market. I want to because I know that the market needs it, I know that the people and the students need it, and I know our product is the only one that is actually offering and they can help those needs. So, certainly from a business point of view, that is success. Personally, it comes with rather than freedom, I would say agency and autonomy. I have built A job for myself and that allows me to to choose who I surround myself with, to choose where I work, to choose how I work. And I think that's the biggest privilege and the biggest gift that I could have given myself. And I'm so lucky that I managed to have done it so early in my life. I'd never wanted to say, oh, you know, I'll be happy and I'll be free when I retire. I wanted to be able to spend my life every day how I, you know, in a sustainable way, in a feasible way, of course, but how I envision within the values that I have for myself. And this is knowing, you know, that it could all end up tomorrow. <laughs> I didn't want to, to wait for that until I was 70 and retired. And I think that's the thing that makes me the happiest and the most jealous and of and try to preserve I would say that, and honestly, when I look at other founders, especially in Italy, the money aspect of success. Of course, like we all want to, you know, earn a lot, make a lot of money out of our companies. We're not saying that the money aspect doesn't it's not there. Of course, it is. But if we were just that, uh, I think there are easier way to to become rich, because as a founder, you're going to spend many many nights. Alone convincing the world around you that what you're doing makes sense. And you need to really be a passionate about what you do and really believe in what you do. So I think that if you're just doing it for the money, if you're just looking for something that will make money after a certain while, you'll get bored and find another way to make money. Maybe I, I maybe I'm a bit naive, but I think for a successful startup, there needs to be uh, that thrive. There is either wanting to you know, have impact or disrupt how things have been done for a long time. That's what I think we want to succeed.
0: Great. So right now, obviously, Sears game is only in Italian, correct?
2: Yes. Yes.
0: Where can they find it?
2: Well, they can find it in the app stores, Apple Store and iOS and Google Play. Uh, they can also find the website. We do. It is uh, available in English, the website for those who are interested. But the content right now is uh, adapted uh, to an Italian curriculum. So this is why we're not catering to and selling to American schools yet. But we have uh, uh, some pilot.
0: What's the URL for the website?
2: It's uh, www.seriousgame.it. Yes. And so, yes, we have a pilot project in the U.S. that we're trying. So if you are from the U.S. and you are teaching Latin, please do reach out because we're really interested in uh, the American market too. But it's not just is, um, right now we're still in the validating the product here in the States.
0: Now let's go to the personal question. What's your hobby or interest outside of uh, work and one that maybe has impacted the rest of your life and work?
2: Yeah, it's an interesting question in a sense of serious game is my hobby. That's what I think about when I'm not working. But if there is one thing that maybe the only thing that can really take me away from work is the mountains. I come from the Dolomite, which is the beautiful... Mountain range in the north of Italy. And so for me, hiking and being immersed in nature, that I wouldn't call it an but that's the other thing I do. So (laughs) I either do serious or I'm in my mountains and that defines who I am. It's a big part of my identity.
0: Great. So, other question you may have heard it before since you mentioned you listened to some of the episodes. Uh, What is the business expression or jargon that drives you crazy? (laughs)
2: <laughs> so many, so so many. One I mention and is the everything is a startup. Everything is a is, is a startup. And sometimes I'm like, what about creating a business that is valuable and sustainable and is making an impact in your community? Because I think sometimes the culture around, especially serial startup, or of just picking up something and then letting it go. If in two, in one years. I don't like that, and there's not enough talk about entrepreneurship and enterprise. And at least um, in some environments, especially here in the U.S., it's always oh, I'm making a startup, I'm making a startup, and sometimes I'm like, it's you're making a business, an enterprise, and that's a good thing, also. Like there, it doesn't have to be a, a digital startup necessarily. So that's kind of the thing that I would like to hear more and and talk more. The jargon, it's kind of difficult because I understand where it comes from, but I would like for people, especially in business, to be more cautious with the word resilience and resilience, because I think that sometimes it's been overused. Maybe it's because the first time that I have seen and used those words when when I was uh, doing research in refugee camps with um, refugees and talking about the developments and the training of resilience in those contexts... And so um, sometimes I think that uh, we use that in business for something that it's uh, you know a normal failure or something that normally happens and you manage to find a way to, to work from there and still continue, but not necessarily. Um, sometimes I feel at least, it's at least in Italy, I'm not sure here in the States, but in Italy, is a very big buzzword. Everything is about, everyone is the resilience and everything is about our, our resilience right these days.
0: All right, final question food for the body or food for the soul you can choose either a recipe or a drink that you love or a book piece of music piece of art movie something that inspires you
2: Uh, certainly i will choose food for the body and i would like to share something that is very dear to me and some very i would say also private and it this is a dish called the pera and i'm sure that you're italian and i'm not even sure you know what it is do you know what pera is
0: pera no like the just the fruit just the fruit or (laughs)
2: See. No, 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 not pera, but pera. So, and for the audience, I come from Verona, which is like an hour and a half drive from Milan where you're from. And and still, you know, people don't know it outside of my city. So this is a very typical traditional uh, dish from my city. The area where I come from used to be very poor. So the traditional foods are quite sad. And <laughs> this is a sauce that would be on the side of the boiled meat. And it's made of bread and pepper. And... As the very traditional dish is in a country, in, a, in each country, all of us from Verona, we only eat the one made by our, in our family. So I would never like go into another family and eat that because the rest, we wouldn't be right. I would never order it at the restaurant. So I only make the one that my father makes. And my father makes it, he likes to make it for all of his friends, especially um, a Christmas, he will have 40, 50 people over. And I think that's his that defines his way of leadership, of having everybody around him in the kitchen and cooking and providing for everyone, but using his own recipe and his own little secrets and inspire everybody. Because I can assure you, people eat that thing and they come out inspired and they just dream. And so for me, that's food for the body and for the soul. And that's just, um, it's full of authenticity and identity and leadership in in my family, for sure.
0: Laura, thank you so much. I'm very glad that you were on the episode.
2: Thank you very, very much for having me. And I, again, it it was a bit intimidating. I have to be honest. But thank you for making me very comfortable and giving me a chance and opportunity to to tell my story.
0: Yes. You know, as I said, we're both intimidated by the fact that we're doing this not in our language. So... (laughs) thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, find a friend who may enjoy it and tell them that they should listen to it. And if you really like the show, tell your friends and post about it on social media. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows reviews like Apple Podcasts or Good Pods, please leave us a stellar rating in a review. Remember to stay tuned because at the end of the credits, I will play a song by Susan Cattaneo, one of Boston's best singer-songwriters. For more information and links for Laura and Sirius Game, go to the podcast website, al4ep.com, spelled with the number 4. You can email me at dino at al4ep.com. On Twitter and Instagram, look for at AL4EDP with the letter D. And on Facebook, look for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, arranged, and recorded by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williamson on bass. And now, enjoy A Place Called Love by Susan Cattaneo.
3: Sometimes my heart's like a leaf that keeps blowing down a long stretch of highway at the mercy of the wind wanna settle down somewhere yeah that's where i'm going but i can't seem to get there from the places i've been there's no map, no signs saying you'll find love here so i just keep on passing through everywhere i live time in- Stops whispering, girl, just believe. I could walk in some dusty old road, stuck, and suddenly, know in a heartbeat, I found what I need. One right turn, somewhere, someone, someday, and I know that's where I'm meant to stay.